Happy New Year! It's great to see you. It's great to be with you. If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Habakkuk chapter 1? Habakkuk chapter 1, it's in the, towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, this time last year in January, we did a, a series on prayer and we spent 21 days in prayer. And you may remember, it was obviously a lot's changed since then, but this year we're actually going to do a week of prayer again. We're going to do a week of prayer in a couple of weeks' time. And we're going to use the prophet Habakkuk to help us. And you'll see more about that as when we get there. Just taking a few phrases from this fantastic book to help us in prayer and help stir us. It's, a, it's actually a very quotable book. And even if you think, who on earth is Habakkuk? And I don't know much about him. You probably know a number of the phrases that he uses in this book. Like, how long, O Lord? Or, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Or, I'm going to do a work in your day that you wouldn't believe, even if you were told. So it's a very quotable book, but quite well known. And the most famous phrase in the book comes from the passage that we're going to read today, which is one of the most important sentences in the whole of Scripture. And it's so important that it's actually shaped the map of Europe in a profound way. And to this day, it's reflected in the coins that you have in your pocket right now. That's a remarkable sentence. Uh, let me tell you the story, okay? I watched The Crown. Uh, just before Christmas, I love that show. Um, but the crown never tells me, never told me what the coin in my pocket and the, and what it says about the queen on the coins has to do with the prophet Habakkuk. But they're very closely connected. And the story goes like this: two thousand six hundred years ago, Habakkuk was praying, as we're going to read in a moment, and calling out to God to stop the injustice among his people. And God said, "It's okay, Habakkuk. I'm going to send the Babylonians, another nation, to come and judge Judah and take them into exile." And Habakkuk said, "No, that's crazy, God. They, the Babylonians are even worse than us. How does that help?" And God said, "Trust me. Write it all down. It will happen." And then He said, "But the righteous shall live by faith." In other words, not everybody's going to die. You're not. I'm not. It's not like you're all going to get wiped out. I'm saying that the righteous will live. By faith. And that sentence is one of the most important sentences in the whole of Scripture. And 600 years after Habakkuk, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul quotes Habakkuk at the start of his letter to the Romans, which is really a letter about how God saves all of us, regardless of our background, regardless of which, really, which sort of ethnic background we're from, simply on the basis of faith. And Paul says, you know, the best way of stating this in the whole Bible is Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. So Paul picks up Habakkuk's phrase and puts it in the letter to the Romans. And that then becomes central 1,500 years after that to what we now call the Protestant Reformation, which is the Reformation that's shaped the map of Europe and in many ways the world ever since, where Martin Luther begins to preach, no, justification is by faith alone and not by works of the law. Now, the twist you probably didn't know about the story is that in 1521, so 500 years ago exactly this year, Henry VIII of the Six Wives, Henry VIII writes a pamphlet responding to Martin Luther on a whole bunch of things, including this doctrine of faith alone. And Henry VIII is furious because Henry VIII says, no, this is ridiculous that Martin Luther thinks you can come to the Lord's Supper by faith alone in the promise without any works. So Henry VIII writes a pamphlet saying why Luther is wrong. And the Pope thinks, oh, this is wonderful, Henry VIII. Well done, Henry VIII. And he gives him a new title. And that title appears on every British coin and has appeared on every British coin since 1714. So if you look at the coin in your pocket right now, I guarantee it'll say this. Elizabeth II, 
DG, which means Deo Gratia, by the Dei Gratia, by the grace of God. Reg, which means Regina, Queen. And then it will say FD, Fidei Defensor, Defender of the Faith. And that's been on every British coin for over 300 years. And it's because Henry VIII said, I don't like what Martin Luther said about justification by faith alone. Now, unfortunately, a few years after that, Henry VIII decided he wanted to divorce his wife and marry somebody else, who then got her head chopped off and so on. And because he divorced his wife, he actually took Britain out of Rome's authority, like the original Brexit, and took Britain out of Rome. And so the Pope said, no, that's it. I'm taking away that title. You cannot call yourself FD, Defender of the Faith, anymore. But a few years later, Parliament said, oh, yes, he can. We're just going to make that phrase about the fact that he defends the true faith, the Anglican faith, the English faith, which is that you are justified by faith and not by works. And it's been on our coins for 300 years. And it all goes back to Habakkuk, who said, the righteous shall live by faith. Over the next three weeks, we're going to try and make sense of the whole book of Habakkuk. And we're going to try and see what it says to us as a whole, not just these sort of odd little phrases here and there. But what we're going to see today is that in the context of what is, basically the whole book is a prophetic response to crisis. And in the context of a whole book, which is prophetically responding to crisis, Today, what Habakkuk offers us is the response of faith. He says, if you want to respond well and prophetically in a crisis, you need to respond with faith. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage. Let's read Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or cry to you violence and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law's paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. 
For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It won't lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It won't delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as shale. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of God. Habakkuk is a prophetic response to crisis. And after the year we've just had, that's something we really need, I think. And today we're going to see the response of faith in a crisis. And then in the next two weeks, the responses of awe and of joy. But before we start talking about faith and its application in our current context, we need to understand the context that Habakkuk's talking in because this is a, it's a strange passage we've just read, but basically it's a four-part conversation between Habakkuk and God. And you probably pick that up towards the end. It's like a, a debate between them. So it starts with Habakkuk complaining, verses 1, 1 to 4. Lord, how long shall I cry for help? You're not doing anything. There's injustice everywhere. I cry to you violence and you won't save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Justice never goes forth. Now that might be a prayer that you've offered in the last 9, 12 months. Lord, what are you doing? Why is injustice allowed to do what it's doing? God, what are you playing at on your throne, not intervening? But that's how the book starts. And the scriptures are full of passages like that. We saw a number of examples in our psalm series. But this is a lament that's not just about tragedy, it's about injustice specifically. Habakkuk can see injustice flourishing in Judah, in God's people. And he's saying, God, why are you allowing this to happen amongst your people? That's the first bit. Then, verses 5 to 11, God responds. He says, oh, look among the nations. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days you wouldn't even believe if I told you. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. In other words, Habakkuk saying, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you judging injustice? And God says, I'm just about to, Habakkuk. I'm going to get the Babylonians to come and take you guys into exile. And that, by the way, that dates the book for us to somewhere around 605 BC. We now know roughly where we're dealing with in, in history. God, in other words, is saying, I'm not going to allow injustice to go unpunished. I'm going to sort it out and I'm going to judge injustice in God's people by bringing the Babylonians to take you into exile for 70 years. Now, Habakkuk is not happy about that at all. So the conversation then has a third part. Habakkuk says, what are you doing, God? And God says, I'm doing this. And Habakkuk goes, no, I don't want you to do that. And then he complains again, verses 12 to 17. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and can't look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked, Babylon, swallows up men more righteous than he, Judah? In other words, Habakkuk saying, I want you to deal with injustice in Judah, but not like this, right? Judah is unrighteous, but Babylon is far worse. It's like out of the frying pan into the fire. How can that possibly be God's solution to the problem? That's the third part of the conversation. And then having made that complaint, that second, his second complaint, he then waits for God's reply. He says, chapter 2 and verse 1, I quite like this. He says, I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. It sounds like he's waiting for a refund, doesn't it? I've written to uh, the so-and-so to say, I wasn't very satisfied with this product and now I'm going to see what response they give to my complaint. Now, Habakkuk is effectively waiting for God's answer to say, how is it not unjust of God to use the Babylonians, another evil nation, to judge Judah 
for their injustice. Now, before we look at what God's answer, you know, the fourth bit, you know, Habakkuk's complaint, God's answer, Habakkuk's second complaint, and then God's answer. Before we move to that last bit, just reflect on Habakkuk's objection for a moment, because I think we can probably all relate to it. Have you never had an experience like this where you say, God, I've got a problem, and God says, well, I'm on it, here's your solution, and then we go, no, not like that. I don't want that to be the answer. Have you ever had that? I get that all the time with my children. Right? So my four-year-old is soaking wet. He's been outside, it's been rained on, didn't take a coat, didn't want to. Now he's soaking wet. He goes, I'm so cold. I say, Sam, we need to get you out of these clothes. And he goes, no, I don't want you to take the clothes off. I want you to make me warm without doing that. And you think, no, no, no. That's, you don't get to choose the solution. Like, the solution to your problem is you need new clothes and we have to dry you properly. But the child doesn't want that. They want, to, they want you to solve the problem, but in their way. You, you ever had that as a parent, perhaps? Or just seeing children behave? Now, the thing is, we do that too in our dialogue with God. I say, God, I want to grow in contentment or humility. And God says to me, okay, well, I think you'll probably find parenting will help and special needs children in your case are really going to help you grow in humility. And I go, no, Lord, not like that. I don't want that. Do you ever do that? You, you pray and you say, Lord, I want this. And he says, here you go. And you go, oh, gosh, no, that isn't what I wanted. Maybe you're never, maybe just much more spiritual than I am, but I've had that experience. It happens a lot in scripture. You remember Naaman, the Syrian general who's leprous? He says, I want healing from God. And Elisha says, yeah, sure, go and dip seven times in the Jordan. And Naaman goes, no, I don't want to do that. The Jordan's really skanky or whatever it might be. The rich young ruler says, I want to live forever. I want everlasting life. And Jesus says, great, give away all your possessions to the poor. And he goes, no, not like that. It happens all the time, doesn't it? We say to God, I want this, and God says, okay, here's, this, here's my solution, and then we complain about the solution because the thing we're asking for, justice or humility or whatever, is everlasting life, it's a good thing. But we may find that the only way of getting there is the same way that Habakkuk did and Judah did. The only way of getting to the thing we want is actually a period of exile, a period of something we do not want. And that's what God has prepared for his people in this book. And we find that in the prophet Jeremiah and in a number of other biblical books. God's saying, I want you to be purified as my people. I want you to love me with all your heart. But actually, I know that you're not going to get there unless you face the consequences of what you've done. And that's going to involve you going to exile in Babylon for 70 years. Now, in the end, God is going to judge Babylon as well. We'll see about that next week but it will take time. It's going to involve more waiting than Habakkuk or Judah might, actually, might like. It's going to involve 70 years of waiting, according to Jeremiah. Verse 3, for still the, sorry, chapter 2, verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It won't lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It won't delay. You know, sometimes the justice of God seems painfully slow. Habakkuk starts this book by lamenting God's slowness in judging Judah. And now God tells him, you're going to have to wait seven decades until Babylon is judged. He doesn't actually tell him the time scale. He just says, it's going to be a long time. We know from other scriptures that it's going to be 70 years. He's saying, you've got to hang in there. You have got to trust me. You have got to live and wait knowing that I am going to do what I said I'd do, even though you might think I'm taking too long about it. And a prophetic response 
to any crisis almost always involves a lot of waiting. But the more certain you are of deliverance, the more steadfastly you can wait for it. Do you know that? The more certain you are of your hope in the future, the more robust your faith in the present. Right? If I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to get out of the, the mess I'm in, I can hang on with a lot of faith for quite a long time. If I'm not sure, if I'm thinking, oh, it might happen, it might not, I don't know, I quickly give up. And probably you're the same. In fact, I think we're all like that. So the day I was writing this message, I was waiting for three things at the same time. And you know, I guess any day in the life, if you've got a kind of you know, busy life or family or things you own or you're trying to get fixed, you're quite often waiting for different things. You might be waiting for you know, a delivery from Amazon. You might be waiting for a phone call back or whatever it might be. Anyway, I was waiting for three things in the same day. I was waiting for an email from a guy I know in America. I was waiting for a tire to arrive on my car because I had a flat tire. We'd driven it the previous day, bumped it, needed to get a replacement tire. And I was waiting, to be honest, for the spring. I was waiting for the sun to begin breaking through and blossoms and birds and all of those things that we look forward to in spring. Now, the email I was expecting was from my friend Eric. The tire I was expecting was from the RAC, right? The car maintenance people. They're going to come and sort out the car. And of course, spring, I'm waiting for God. But my levels of confidence in those three individuals or groups are not equally weighted, right? I know Eric might well, he'll probably do his best, but he might have other things on. He might not email me back today. And the RAC, I feel a bit more confident because they have like a policy guarantee where they, if they're not there within two hours, it invalidates their whatever. And then with God, I'm absolutely certain because he's got thousands and thousands of years of faithfulness behind him bringing spring at the start of each year and keeping all of his promises ever. Now, so I was wishful. I was hoping about the email. I was wishful. I was thinking, yeah, I'd like that to happen, but it might not. I was actually quite optimistic when it came to the tire. I thought, I'm, I'd be very surprised if that tire doesn't come today. But I was absolutely certain that spring would be coming. And I still am. Right? And as a result, I wait for spring in a very different way to the way I wait for the tire or for the email. Like Habakkuk says, if it seems slow, and around this time of year, let's be honest, waiting for spring does. But Habakkuk says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. This is God reassuring his prophets I am going to judge them. I am going to do what I said I'd do. But it might seem slow to you. You need to wait. You just need to wait. You just need, you just need to trust me. And, and a prophetic response to crisis will almost always involve us being prepared to wait in faith and hope for longer than other people might. And the biblical word for that kind of waiting, that kind of trust in a person that you know spring is coming even if you aren't quite sure when, the biblical word for that is faith. And it is at the heart of a prophetic response to a crisis. And that takes us to Habakkuk's most famous statement in verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. Right? When crises come, when there is injustice in the land or a war or a global pandemic or an exile to Babylon or whatever it is, the righteous shall live by faith. We, the righteous will be the people who wait, trusting certainly in the God who keeps his word. The people of God are marked out by a confidence in God, our certainty that he will do what he said he would do, even if it takes longer than we might like him to. And in Habakkuk's case, that means hanging on to the promise that God is going to judge Babylon and free Judah. 
And in the last 12 months, it's meant us as the people of God continuing to believe that God is good and that he keeps his promises in spite of all of the tragedies and inconveniences and in spite of the fact we haven't been able to meet together as a church. The defining mark of God's people in a crisis, God tells us, is not actually that we are more moral than everybody else. The righteous shall not live by goodness or obedience or whatever else it might be. Those things will follow. Of course they should mark our lives. But that's not the defining feature of the people of God. The defining feature of the people of God is that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous are the people who trust the Lord and know that he's going to keep his word because he always does. And that's what Habakkuk saw. And that's what Paul saw when he quoted Habakkuk. He said, this is at the heart of this message in Jesus Christ. That the people who come and are forgiven by God and reconciled to God are the ones of faith. Not just the ones of morality or intelligence or spirituality or whatever it may be. The people of faith. That's the thing that Paul saw. And that's the thing that made Martin Luther so excited. And that's the thing that made Henry VIII so angry. Because it isn't just true in specific situations. It's not just true of the Babylonian exile for Habakkuk as a one-off crisis. It's actually true of the entire relationship between God and human beings. The righteous shall live by faith. It's not just a one-off here. It's not just, oh yeah, in that particular moment. What Paul does when he quotes Habakkuk is he realises what Habakkuk said was true specifically of the Babylonian exile, but it is a brilliant statement of the principle by which God works with human beings which is that when people trust the Lord even if their lives are a mess God will still intervene on their behalf to rescue and save them because despite the Babylonian exile and despite Covid and lockdowns and all the rest we all face a bigger crisis than that the word crisis actually means judgment and there is a judgment to come one day that is far bigger than the Babylonian exile and far bigger than COVID. All human beings are one day going to face the crisis of judgment. And what Habakkuk saw prophetically over Judah and Babylon is going to be true for all of us. That we will be judged eternally by the perfect and impartial judge of all the earth who never puts a foot wrong and never renders an unjust verdict. And when that day comes, the basis for our righteousness or our justification or having been found in the right by Almighty God will not be our moral excellence. It won't be our Jewishness. It won't be our intelligence. It won't be our creativity. It will be our faith. It will be our belief, our trust in the Lord. I want you to imagine two, two women I've just made up, right? Val and Maxine, right? We're waiting for a vaccine, so it's Val and Maxine, and they are, they're, they're both looking to get out of, you know, the whole moment we've been in and this last 12 months, and they're both hoping that life will get back to normal for them soon, but Val doesn't believe, she doesn't trust the government, she doesn't trust the doctors, she doesn't trust Oxford people or whoever it might be, so she said, I'm not going to get vaccinated, I am going to protect myself by my works, by keeping my distance, mask wearing, staying at home, I won't eat out, I won't send my kids to school, I'm not having any of that. Val is effectively going to be protected by her works. Meanwhile, Maxine, who lives next door, says, ah, I, I trust them, actually. I think it's going to be fine. I've seen what vaccines do with measles and tuberculosis and 
mumps and you know, smallpox and all of these things. And I'm, I'm going to have a piece of that, actually, because I want to get back to living life like I used to. And I'm looking forward to that. So I think I'll get a vaccine. The two women are neighbours and they go through the course of 2021, one of them saying, I'm going to be restored and protected by my works. And the other one is simply saying, I don't have any works. I'm not clever. I didn't even understand what they put in the vaccine, but I'm simply going to trust that it will save me. I'm going to trust that the people who say this is going to save you are telling the truth. And so I'm going to do nothing at all. I'm simply going to go to the doctor and say, I'm, can I, I'd like to be immunized by faith. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm, I trust you. I believe you. I'm just going to receive the gift that you want to give me in order to make me safe from this whole crisis. You see, the only difference between these two women, Val and Maxine, is not that one of them is more moral than the other or understands medicine better than the other. The only difference is that one of them believes and the other one doesn't. One of them says, I'm going to trust you to do it for me. And the other one says, I don't trust you. I'm going to do it myself. The difference between those two women is as wide as the world. And of course, I'm not really talking about vaccines. I, I'm definitely more like Maxine on this one, personally. But I want to be like Maxine in the life of faith as well. I want to be the person who says, do you know, Jesus, I cannot do works. I can't wear enough masks, keep enough distance from sin to stop my soul from going down on the day of judgment. I just can't do it. The only thing I can do is to turn to you, the saviour of the world, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you're going to give me something that is going to protect me. It's going to immunise me. It's going to keep me safe from the judgment that would otherwise rightly be mine. And the only thing I'm bringing to the table is my trust that you are going to do it for me rather than me do it for myself. I'm not better than Val. I'm not better than anybody else. I just trusted that God's going to rescue me because he said he would. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. For it's the power of God for everyone who believes, the Jew first, but also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. That's a prophetic response to the crisis. It's a response of trust in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the free gift of rescue that is ours in Christ. Thank you for the life that comes as we trust in you in whatever crises we're in, the crisis of judgment, the crisis of COVID, crisis of exile, whatever it is. Lord, when we look at the world around us and we see chaos and difficulty and we say, Lord, I'm going to have to wait for you, but I trust that you're going to keep your word. You always come through for us and you make us righteous because of your commitment to honour your word. I am so thankful that that's true and we love you. Amen.